Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I just want to say that this episode contains graphic discussions of sexual assault and sexual violence that may be distressing to some survivors and listeners. If you or someone you love is a survivor of sexual assault and need help, please call 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-HOPE. Hope is 4673. Or... Visit online at hotline.rainn.org. That's the word hotline.rainn.org to chat anonymously one on one with the train staff. I hope you enjoy the following interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Millar, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jennifer Hirsch and Dr. Seamus Khan about their new book, Sexual Citizens, a Landmark Study of Sex, Power, and Assault on Campus, published in 2020 by Norton. Professor Hirsch is a professor of sociomedical sciences at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. She co-directs SHIFT, the Sexual Health Initiative to Foster Transformation at Columbia University, and her research spans five intertwined domains, the anthropology of love, gender sexuality and migration, sexual sexual reproductive and HIV risk practices, social science research on sexual assault and undergraduate well-being, and the intersections between anthropology and public health. Professor Khan is a professor of sociology at Columbia University, where he is the chair of the department. He writes on culture, inequality, gender, and elites, and he was a co-principal investigator of SHIFT, a multi-year study of sexual health and sexual violence at Columbia University. Professor Hirsch, Professor Khan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. So I wonder if we'll begin the interview by both of you saying a few words about yourself and how you got interested in studying this project. Um, Sure. I'm an anthropologist. I've spent my whole career working on gender, sexuality, and health. And in the summer of 2014, as I observed the national conversation about campus sexual assault, it seemed to me that there was something missing. There was a lot of attention to adjudication, to what we do afterwards, um, and a sort of imagination about perpetrators. Uh, you know, the campus is a hunting ground, but there wasn't really um, the same level of attention to prevention. And I thought if we s- understand the social roots of sexual assault, we could do more to prevent it. Great. And um, I'm a sociologist. And uh, like Jennifer, we both have a background in doing ethnographic research. And um, I was sort of brought on uh, by uh, Jennifer. We were actually, our relationship is a bit of an arranged marriage um, by Alondra Nelson, who um, was at the time the Dean of the Social Sciences here. Jennifer was looking for a co-investigator, someone to do work on the ethnographic portion of this larger project, um, uh, which she co-led with Claude Mellons. 
And um, in that, uh, Ilandra said, why don't you talk to Seamus? Because he has done some work in gender and has a lot of expertise doing work on ethnographic research in elite educational institutions. And so since the research was located at Columbia University, um, an elite educational uh, institution, um, uh, Jennifer and I met up and began this project together. I mean, it's funny when the first meeting that we had was the first time we'd ever met. Um, so we didn't really know each other going into it, but we had sort of overlapping but complementing interests. And we just celebrated our fifth anniversary. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Um, so you note in the beginning of the book um, that you were using a new approach to studying sexual assault on a college campus. So what made this study different and who was your intended audience in writing this book? So while there has been some ethnographic research um, on college campuses looking at sexual assault, our study looked at the entire campus ecology. So instead of thinking about campus sexual assault in relation to um, rape culture or toxic masculinity, we start out from the point of view of thinking uh, and explaining sexual assault as something that is socially produced. Um, that you can really only understand by looking not just at how students party, but at where they sleep and how they interact on a day-to-day basis. And our audience is everyone who reads books. Um, you know, we're at our book tour. Um, we've been going around to campuses across the country, but actually a lot of the, the professors, when they talk with us about the work, engage as parents and as people. So we're really a big message in our work is that everybody has a role to play in preventing campus sexual assault. And that one of the reasons that we have so consistently failed to move the needle on this as a problem is because people have only looked at higher education to solve the problem. We, in the book, talk about what parents can do to prevent sexual assault and what K-12 schools can do to prevent sexual assault and what faith institutions uh, can do to prevent campus sexual assault. So this is, it's not a higher education problem. It's an everyone problem. Yeah, absolutely. I really liked how accessible the book was. And you really can talk to a variety of people. You can talk to academics, you can talk to students, and you can talk to parents, like you said. So I think that's a really good feature of the book is how accessible it is to a variety of different audiences. Um, So tell us about the methods that you use to conduct the study. You mentioned ethnography. Um, What was the experience like of conducting this research? So um, we were part of a really large research team for for the broad research. So there were three interconnected studies that were part of what SHIFT was, and the book is based upon the ethnographic portion. So in the larger project, um, there was a survey uh, and a daily diary, both quantitative instruments um, that were uh, primarily overseen by Claude Mellons. Um, There was also this ethnographic component, and then there was a, um, a policy component. So the big part that we draw upon for sexual citizens is the ethnographic component. And that really had three parts to it, maybe even four. Um, one, we interviewed students. So we interviewed 151 students for about two hours each. And that was asking about what their lives are like, you know, what, what their lives were like before college, with their families, with dating, with drinking, and eventually with sex and with sexual assault. And for some of the students that we spoke to, um, uh, it took up to three interviews to sort of capture the breadth of their experience. We also ran um, a series of focus groups, uh, which included, you know, just 
um, uh, any range of students to targeted focus groups, religious students, students of color, first generation students, LGBTQ students. Um, and those gave us a sense of how students sort of collectively talked about the issue. And then finally, we um, did participant observation. And the participant observation um, involved Jennifer and I for part of it, which was in sort of public spaces. But then we had hired a series of younger looking um, and not just younger looking, actually younger researchers um, who hung out in fraternity basements and sorority hallways, who were in students' uh, dorm rooms and living rooms cooking dinner with them, who uh, were in religious spaces and on athletic buses. And the idea was to get a sort of total picture of life in college. The final component of the ethnographic and also the quantitative research was that we had an advisory board. Um, so the research was based on what, what's called a community-based participatory research model. And that community-based participatory research model integrates um, the people who were researching into the research process itself. So we had a group of almost 20 undergraduates that we met with once a week. Um, every Monday from 8 till 10 in the morning. And we talked to them about things like how we would ask questions, what kinds of questions we would ask, how to reach people. Um, uh, and they really served as critical entry points for us into campus life in designing this. And the reason for that was that um, most research sort of sits on a shelf. And we wanted our research to speak directly to the people we were researching and that meant integrating them as well as key administrators as another advisory panel in the entire research process. Yeah. Did you have any difficulties building rapport with participants? I mean, our research, our research staff were extraordinary. They um, reflected and were, were um, well-prepared to integrate themselves with the diversity of um, undergraduates, th reflecting the diversity of the Columbia and Barnard undergraduate student bodies. And so they uh, were comfortable in queer spaces and they were comfortable in religious spaces. And obviously there's sometimes overlap between those two things and um, equally adept at making connections with students who were engaged in Greek life or athletic life. So we really, um, we were very intentional about building an ethnographic sample that represented um, the breadth of uh, the kinds of student experiences that um, that happen on our campus, and so we hired a staff that was ready to um, engage with all of those experiences. So I, I feel like no, they didn't. They were actually they were extraordinary, not just in their um, capacity to connect with the undergraduates, but also the work was very demanding. When you read Sexual Citizens, you get a sense of just how many late nights they pulled and uh, their capacity to listen with compassion and empathy to some really hard experiences, including both the experiences of students who were assaulted and um, stories of students who recounted assaulting their peers. Yeah, absolutely. I want to go ahead and jump right into some more of the content of the book. So you introduce and define three terms in your, in your introduction, sexual projects, sexual citizens, and sexual geographies. Can you tell us a bit about each of these concepts? 
Sure. Um, so the idea of a sexual project emerges out of some of Jennifer's earlier work. Um, and the, a sexual project is an answer to the question of what is sex for? Um, so there are lots of reasons why people have sex. For pleasure, it's an obvious sexual project. But sometimes people have sex to have a new kind of experience, to connect with another person, to better understand their own sexuality, to increase their status within groups. And so we use, as an analytic framework, the idea of sexual projects or to look at why it is that people are having sex. And the reason we do that is that understanding the reasons why people are having sex helps us understand sexual situations. And those sexual situations are often tied to sexual assault. Sexual citizenship is the idea that people have the right to say yes and the right to say no to sex and that the people that they're having sex with have equivalent rights. And so this is the, the term that really defines the book. And it, it seeks to kind of put in some ways a moral framework onto sex and sexuality and, and, and to say that we as communities and as people have a responsibility to develop the sexual citizenship in young people. That is their sense of their right to say yes and the right to say no to sex and the fact that the people they're having sex with have equivalent rights. And then finally, sexual geographies is an attention to things like space. And this is really a fundamentally um, sociological and anthropological insight that talks about the ways in which space produces interactions. Um, and so for us, we're thinking about things as simple as furniture. Um, so if you think about two young people who are hanging out at, um, say, a party, and they decide to go home together to a dorm room. If they open the door to that dorm room, they're usually confronted with three pieces of furniture or four pieces of furniture, a desk, a bed, a bureau, and a chair. And if they're going to sit together, they're going to sit together on the bed. The implication for us, then, is that we should think about the geographies of experience of campus or the ways in which the spaces of campus life influence people's sexual opportunities. And for us, it's not just about things like furniture, but it's also about access to space and um, the ways in which the access to those spaces, the control over spaces are inequitably distributed on campus. And so uh, let me give you, I'll tell you a story and that will animate these concepts. Um, so Austin, in some ways, um, is a very sympathetic character. We tell the story um, of a summer night he spent with his girlfriend that's the only really like hot sex scene in the book. And I'm not going to describe it here. Readers just need to find that for themselves. I'm not even going to tell you what page it's on. Um, but uh, so Austin, you know, he was, he was not just a nice guy, but he seemed like he was really a good committed to being a good lover. He and his girlfriend developed a set of nicknames for the kinds of orgasms that she had. So in some ways, a very appealing character. And yet Austin told us a story about being um, in a room late at night uh, with a girl who was his roommate's girlfriend's roommate. So they had been shoveled off together so the two others could be alone. And the girl was really drunk. And she said to him, she wasn't interested in doing anything. And yet he got in bed with her. And then he started to touch her body. And so that's an assault, right? And then he thought to himself, you know, this isn't the thing. And so you can understand that experience in terms of sexual projects. Austin was um, very anxious about not having a lot of sexual experience at that point in his time in college. And so he was in that interaction, literally trying to accrue sexual experience. That was his project. Um, he 
was not being attentive to that young woman's sexual citizenship. So he wasn't thinking as he touched her body about her right to sexual self-determination until he realized that what he was doing was wrong. And then you can think about sexual geographies, like what the, the way that we have organized students' experiences on campus, there's an almost tidal flow of young people in and out of others' rooms. And if you say to your roommate, no, you're not willing to be shuffled aside so they can be alone with their partner, people kind of think you're a jerk. And so the sexual geography produces an opportunity for sexual assault there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned one project is becoming a skilled sexual partner, accruing that sexual um, experience. And then you mentioned four others in the book, so seeking pleasure, connecting with another person emotionally, defining oneself and impressing others. Can you say a little bit about those two? Sure. I mean, you know, for us, the the reason we're interested in these these different projects is that a big argument of the book is that sexual assault is not one thing. It's actually many different things. Um, and so um, what that means is that there's, it's unlikely that we'll kind of have a vaccine for sexual assault. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the reasons that people commit assaults, the reasons that people are in situations where assaults happen, they vary considerably. And so when we think about these different kinds of assaults, um, one of the things that we look at is the different kinds of sexual projects that people have. So in the story that Jennifer just told, if people are thinking about um, sexual assaults relative to the accrual of experience, um, they're maybe unlikely to be attentive to their partner's sexual um, uh, uh, interests or their sexual citizenship in that case. Another example, though, is uh, a young man that we spoke to. In the book, we call him Adam. And actually, in, in the book, we use pseudonyms all the time. And Adam was a a gay man from the Midwest, from a fairly conservative family, who, um, you know, wasn't really out to his family initially, and then eventually found a boyfriend uh, on campus, and he was really thrilled to have a boyfriend. Um, And part of the reason why was because he still had some sort of values about um, the importance of a relationship that had been instilled in him from his family. He didn't like what he described as the kind of hookup culture of gay men in New York City. And he proceeded to tell us a story about how his boyfriend came home one evening and, in his words, he basically raped me. And in that story, you know, he he commented how his boyfriend was often really forceful about sex. And it was something that he tolerated because the relationship was really important to him. And to make sense of that story, we have to think about his very different sexual project to Austin's. So Adam's sexual project was a sexual project about having and maintaining a relationship. In some ways, the sexual project was about producing this other thing that was socially valuable to him. And that put him at risk. Um, He tolerated things from his boyfriend that he might not have otherwise tolerated because he wanted to preserve that relationship. And so the different kinds of sexual projects that we talk about help us make sense of these very different experiences. The one of Austin that Jennifer just told you about, to the one of Adam that I just mentioned. You also talk about several major themes in the book, including how substances like alcohol um, affect sexual assault, Greek life, digital interactions and dating apps, and issues of consent. So how did each of these issues, um, and you can talk about them in however important they were to um, your findings, how did these um, different concepts or 
uh, themes of the book affect and shape the landscape of sexual assault? So, well, first we'll take consent. Um, one of the things that we show in the book in relation to sexual projects is that there are a lot of different ways that students actually do consent. That the students, you know, they're smart, right? And so they have absorbed the instructions about affirmative consent and they can parrot them back to you. But in fact, um, there is really an enormous diversity in terms of how students either elicit or imagine themselves giving consent, ranging from marching through affirmative consent exactly as they've been taught to sending a text that says, you up, right? And so I think that there's an understandable impetus on the part of institutions to want to respond and do something about prevention. And so there's been a lot of emphasis on teaching young people um, how to practice affirmative consent. And in fact, in some states, it's the law and higher education institutions are required to teach affirmative consent. But if you think about, we talk a lot lot about um, in the book about the metaphor of, of safe driving and think about all of the layers of social effort that have been um, created to enable young people to do what is actually a pretty dangerous thing, which is to grab the car keys and move a two-ton vehicle around the world um, without hurting other people. So there's driver's ed, but we don't just leave it up to pedagogy. There's also road design and engineers have built safer roads and created speed bumps in high traffic areas. And so there's layer upon layer of social engagement to make something safer. And we've pretty much failed to do the same with sex. And so consent is a little bit like traffic lights. Like, yes, stop signs and traffic lights are important to safe driving, but you can't boil all of driving down to stop at the stop sign. And similarly, you can't boil all of sexual assault prevention down to pay attention to consent. Sex is a complicated interpersonal behavior. And I think that we need to acknowledge and prepare young people for that complexity rather than trying to dumb it down for them. And, you know, when when we talk about consent, one of the themes that often comes up is that you can't be drunk and consent to sex. And, you know, um, Jennifer and I don't disagree with this, um, but we also think it's important, and this is the advantage of an ethnographic project, to sort of make sense of the people's lives in the ways that they're living them. So, you know, one of the things that we note in the book is that people don't just get drunk and then happen to have sex. They often get drunk in order to have sex. And so we need to interrogate why that is, why it is that people use alcohol in the way that they do um, and tie it to sexual activity. One young woman that we spoke to told us alcohol was like Novocaine before going to the dentist um, for her to have sex. And if we think about that for a moment, why was it that she felt she had to inoculate herself from the potential pains of sex? And the pains that she was sort of describing were social ones. There was a deep sense of shame about wanting to participate in sex or even having sex. And that was something that's not that uncommon. I mean, if we think about young people today, there's this vision of them as being sex crazed, but it's important to remember that they actually have less sex today um, than their parents did. And so it's it simply isn't the case um, that we've seen this massive ramping up of sexual activity, but we have seen a kind of persistence of sexual shame, and that that sexual shame is tied in some degree to alcohol use. 
Jennifer and I also tie the idea of alcohol use to a particular kind of college experience. So not all students drink and not all students drink a lot. Um, in, in the survey that was run by Claude Ann Mellons, what we found was that a little over half of the assaults, I think it was 57% of the assaults, um, were uh, the method of perpetration was alcohol. But that meant that, you know, about 43% of the assaults, it wasn't, it was something else. And of that half, those students were disproportionately white. And we have a chapter in the book that that we call the toxic brew. And it's really about the relationship between whiteness, masculinity, power, and alcohol consumption. Men drink far more than women, and it actually puts them at risk of assaulting people as well as being assaulted. But black students don't drink nearly as much. And with all of our attention to drunken assaults, one of the things that we do is often ignore the experience of black students or the ways in which black students experience assault. And so for us, we want to put things like alcohol in a kind of intersectional matrix, or by that I mean that we need to think about the relationship between whiteness, alcohol consumption, power, and masculinity if we're going to think our way through experiences of sexual assault. Yeah, my next question actually was to talk about the toxic brew, because I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Um, But I also want to hear more about how non-white students and non-heterosexual students, how their experiences with sexual assault differed from white heterosexual students. Um, So I'll tell you another story. Charisma was a, a, a woman of color, a student who didn't feel comfortable in the uh, fratty campus social scene. And so she um, ended up meeting a guy out in Brooklyn who she had been introduced to for her by her roommate. She felt like the dating pool on campus was just not as, as large or as good for women of color. Um, and she took the subway out there. It was a weekend. Um, weekend subway repairs made it a really long trip. She got lost. It was raining. She finally got to his apartment. She wasn't really planning on doing much. She thought maybe they'd make out. And she told us um, sort of evidence for that, that she had worn what she described as her granny panties and not even brought a toothbrush or her pills. Um, so uh, they did a couple of shots and smoked a joint and watched TV and then um, he assaulted her. And she, you know, some students could have had a bad vibe and just like opened their phone and clicked on an app and been whisked away by um, a taxi. But uh, she wasn't one of those students. She didn't have 60 bucks extra. And she was stuck out there. And so you can't, um, that's not about a fraternity. That's about the campus social space that produces vulnerability um, because of people's perceptions of the dating pool. So I think that if we talk about, um, if we only focus on sort of what people imagine uh, the campus hunting ground organized around parties where people are drunk, you miss a whole dimension of experience. And that's one of the things that we lift up in sexual citizens is that there's not one form of power that produces vulnerability to assault, but instead, racial inequality layered on top of gender inequality, layered on top of other forms of inequality, um, put students in positions where sometimes uh, the person who might be assaulting the other person is not even aware of how much power they wield in that interaction. Yeah, to build on what Jennifer said, you know, a big 
uh, aim of the book is in its design, we want to integrate the range of stories of students from different kinds of experiences. So we didn't write the book in a way that is like, here's the race chapter and what it's like to see racial differences. Here's the queer student chapter. Um, when you read the book, one of the things that you'll see is how we integrate all of those stories into a kind of singular narrative. Um, and, you know, for the experience of queer students, it's, it's, it's very, um, we, we found something very interesting, but also something very disturbing, um, which is that queer students experience some of the highest rates of sexual assault, um, higher than just about any other group. And um, that's important to note because many of our classic explanations of why it is that sexual assaults happen are tied to things like uh, rape culture and to toxic masculinity. But if we think about why it is that um, queer students have such high rates of assault, if we don't think that there's a rampant rape culture among queer communities, and we don't think that there is, or if you find that many of those queer assaults aren't actually committed by hegemonic masculine people, but happen within the community, you need to generate a different kind of explanation. And so Jennifer and I really want to build on the gender and power perspective, the ways in which gender is an important form of inequality that makes sexual assault more likely to happen, but that gender isn't the only form of inequality, that there are lots of other inequalities. So the story that Jennifer just told about charisma, you know, had she had more money and, and, and wasn't in it as financially precarious of a position, maybe she could have jumped in an Uber to go home. Had she uh, not been forced off of campus life in such a way that made her feel like she wasn't really comfortable within campus parties, we would have had a different scenario. For queer students, um, you know, uh, we, we have one story, and there are, there are a series of stories throughout the book of people who identify as queer or genderqueer. So they don't use the, they use the pronouns they, them, theirs. Um, one of the students that we spoke to told us a story about how they um, were in this relationship and they had were just beginning a kind of uh, transition, a gender identity transition, and no longer wanted to use their penis for sex. And their partner became very, very resentful of this and pressured them again and again and again to actually use their penis for sex, even though they no longer identified as men. And this person consented to it. They eventually said yes um, uh, uh, and consented to the sex, but it felt like a constant invalidation of their identity. In that scenario, one of the things that we see is the ways in which queer silencing and silencing around sex and identity really puts people at risk all of the time, the inability to have those conversations, but also the ways in which their partner um, uh, drew upon some of their insecurities in order to extract a yes. And that relates back to Jennifer's earlier point about consent. And so, um, you know, the, if, if it seems like this is complicated, part of the point of the book is that it's complicated. Um, but another part of the book is that actually there are things that we can do to prevent these things. And that the sort of three major concepts that we use help us cut through the complications to provide us with strategies of what to do to, in order to prevent these things from happening. One of those things in relationship to this conversation is thinking about equality and the ways in which equality is fundamentally a sexual assault prevention strategy. I just want to add on to that. I mean, one thing that was so um, striking in relation to racial um, analyses of sexual assault, every single Black woman that we spoke with had experienced unwanted sexual touching, every single one. And so you can't, 
understand that without addressing that as both gen- you know the term that people use in the literature gender based violence but it's also it's racism right let's call it what it is and that means that if you're just telling people about consent you're not addressing problems with racism on campuses. So I just want to lift up what Seamus was saying that addressing equality is a sexual assault prevention strategy and explicitly grounding sexual assault prevention in a framework of anti-racism is what we all need to be doing. Yeah. And before we talk more about um, prevention, I do want to talk about reporting decisions. So how were reporting decisions made among students who were sexually assaulted? And what were the social consequences of reporting sexual assault? So um, we find, like most people, that overwhelmingly people do not report sexual assault. Um, Importantly, reporting can mean a range of things. Um, Most people who experience an assault tell somebody but they tend not to report to the university. Um, So uh, overwhelmingly, we saw in the survey research, uh, but as well as in our own research, that people talk to somebody about their assault. Um, But overall, uh, they they tended not to report to the university. It's less than 5% of assaults get reported. And so we often use the analogy of an iceberg um, when thinking about our research. Um, So icebergs and cars, I guess, are two of the analogies that we use. And, you know, if we only focus on those cases that get reported, um, we don't get to see the totality of what's happening. Um, Instead, we need to look not just at the tip of the iceberg, but to swim down beneath it and to map the wide range of things. And in our research, one of the things I didn't mention was that we had an exemption from Title IX reporting. So we actually didn't need to report um, uh, about incidences of sexual assault that we heard about, which we normally would have to do as college professors. Now, why is it that people don't report what's happening? Well, it's important to recognize that people are often socially embedded with the people who assault them, or in maybe clearer English, people know the people who assault them and they tend to be in their groups of friends. So if we return to Adam's story and we ask, why was it that Adam didn't tell anybody about the fact that his boyfriend came home and assaulted him. It was because he really liked his boyfriend and he liked being in a relationship. And there were lots of other things he got out of that relationship that were really socially meaningful to him. In the book and in some of the affiliated papers of the book, we talk about the social risks that people think through before making a decision about what they're going to do. And You know, in the college environment, people experience all kinds of social risks in terms of making a report. One young woman told us a story about how she, you know, was contacted by an ex-boyfriend who she still liked and was, um, you know, still kind of attracted to. And he was distraught. He wanted to talk to her about his sister's cancer diagnosis. And so they went out for a walk into the park. And um, she became very confused because he suddenly started to kiss her. And um, she was expecting to provide, con- like, to, to console him and to console a friend. She wasn't anticipating a sexual uh, interaction. And then eventually he ended up raping her. Um, he pushed her against a tree. She said, no, don't. And he moved her to the ground. When she talked to us about this story, she didn't talk to us about it as a rape or even as an assault. What she talked to about it as, as having sex. She even joked later with us. Um, about having found um, dirt in her body as a result of the encounter. 
She kind of awkwardly laughed about it. Now, why didn't she think about the experience in the way as, as an assault? Um, because she knew him, because she liked him, because her relationship with him was socially valuable. Um, she explained to us that when she said no, he must have heard her as saying no to being up against the tree. That's why he brought them to the ground. And these kinds of stories are very difficult to hear, um, but they are important to listen to because it helps us understand why it is that maybe, you know, to think about prevention, it doesn't mean pushing her to recognize the truth of her experience. It means instead pushing him to recognize how he wasn't thinking about her fundamental sexual citizenship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so what surprised you most about the research process or your findings? I mean, you have a lot of data that you've been through here um, and a lot of different methods of gathering that data. Um, so you really were embedded in the research site um, as be doing an ethnography. So what surprised you most about these research findings? And also, what are some misconceptions that you'd like to address about sexual assault with this book? I think a thing that's very striking that will be striking to readers in the book, because this is not a perspective that's, that's represented is the stories of people who assault their peers. Um, you know, when you think about an assaulter, um, you think about the stories that we read in the newspaper, um, which are, um, extreme stories represented, uh, um, with the people as sort of sociopaths. Um, one man, uh, one young man told us a story that began, I put on a tie, so I knew he was I knew I was gonna have sex. And then he proceeded to tell us a story about um an evening where he'd been invited to a sorority formal. He wasn't super into the girl, but it was a really high prestige sorority, and so he agreed to go. And he was during he was an athlete and it was during season, so he wasn't drinking. Um she seemed to really like him. She got really drunk. And at the end of the evening, it was pouring rain and he couldn't quite figure out how to get her back to her room without everybody getting soaking wet. And so he just brought her back to his room. And then as he recounted to us, um, he had sex with her as she slipped in and out of consciousness. And so that's an assault, right? That's not sex. But he wouldn't, I mean, unless he was truly a sociopath, he wouldn't have told us that story in the way he did. He seemed to feel sort of aggrieved about the whole experience as if he were put upon that he'd had to stay up so late when he had an important practice the next morning. Um, So he truly did not understand that what he was doing was assault. And, you know, you could hear that story and you, you know, your hot take could be, he's a terrible person, but sitting in judgment is not really so effective as a prevention strategy. And the question we want people to ask when they read that story is who failed to teach him how to have sex, who failed to teach him to see that young woman's right to sexual self-determination in that moment. So I think that the the stories that we heard um, from, you know, what people describe as perpetrators, um, but perpetrators is not an identity. Um, so in the book, we talk about them as assaulters, um, were surprising. I think it was also um, important for us to learn to recognize men's experiences of being assaulted, because that is a story that is unfrequent, infrequently told. Um, one young man uh, told us a story about being assaulted. You know, a woman plied him with drinks over the course of the evening. 
they went back to his room. Um, he didn't really remember what happened. And so he had to have his, his friends tell him the next day. And they were like, oh yeah, she was definitely trying to get with you all night, but you seem fine. Like you were going to have sex. You weren't even going to have to pay for your drinks. What was the problem? So his friends didn't have the capacity to see that as an assault because they were operating from a perspective of men always wanting intercourse. And so I think that for the reader to learn to see that an erection is not a barometer of desire is an important moment of social recognition when you sort of let go of that gendered script where men always want sex and women women's job is to be the blockers. Mm -hmm. And before we sort of go into talking about prevention efforts, I do want to go back to one topic that we touched on initially um, towards the beginning of the interview, and that is digital interactions and dating apps. How did that shape sexual assault and sexual citizenship on campus? Because that's something that um, is sort of, is newer, especially in the dating apps. So I, I'm interested to hear more about that. Yeah, we um, so we spent some time thinking about dating apps. It wasn't a major thing that we observed, um, in part because of the ways in which we saw and heard about people using those apps. Um, I mean, one of the things that may be surprising to listeners, maybe not to younger listeners, but probably to older listeners, is that um, you know the ways that the ways in which people used dating and hookup apps um, were actually instances where people often had very explicit conversations about what they were and were not willing to do in ways that they often did not in person. Um, but then also, um, the young people we spoke to described, you know, that. The, the vast terrain of people who exist in a space like a, a major university where there's thousands and thousands of undergraduates and, you know, dating apps helped sort those people, like who was available, who was not available, who was heterosexual, who was not heterosexual, who um, actually suggested that they were in fact sincerely interested in meeting somebody and who did not. And so, you know, students, used these apps in a variety of ways uh, to try and, and meet people. Um, uh, but that, you know, the, the, the range of, of, of media that they used also varied, like Facebook Messenger at the time that we did the research was actually pretty common. Um, people moved across a wide range of platforms and used them. But um, I would say that, you know, we, we didn't find that dating apps put people particularly at risk of anything. Um, if anything, we, we saw it as one of the places where people had slightly more open conversations. And one of the points of this book is that there's so much silence that's produced around sex and sexuality within families and communities. Um, that, you know, when we talk to young people, so many of them told us stories of their sex ed, which was in, in, in school, was basically a sexual diseases course. Um, so it was about the risks of pregnancy and then pictures of what gonorrhea looked like. Um, and it was a fear-based approach, which basically said, don't do it. That for many, their parents, the most of a conversation that they had with them was a conversation where they handed them a book and said, you can ask me some questions later. And the message was, don't ask me any questions later. Um, and so, you know, the, the thing that sort of is highlighted in the apps thing, uh, conversation where people actually were a little bit clearer about who they were sexually and what they were seeking, the apps were filling a void 
a fundamental void that families and communities had failed to sort of fill, which was to talk to young people about the importance of coming to understand their sexual project, of coming to understand what sex is for and what they value. And so for us, you know, we tend not to emphasize things like apps and pornography because we think of those things as important, but important only insofar as communities have failed young people. One young woman we spoke to told us um, actually, it was her uh, her boyfriend. Uh, so one young man we spoke to told us about his girlfriend and how she, quote, didn't even know where her holes were. And this was sort of an astonishing thing to him about how much silence there was. He actually wasn't from the United States. He was an international student. How much silence there was about sex and sexuality. And so instead of focusing on things like apps or in a different context, pornography, we're really interested in addressing those silences and the necessity of opening up conversations about things like sexual projects, sexual citizenship, and sexual geographies as ways to talk explicitly and consistently with young people in ways that sort of normalize what is their normal desire to understand and have sexual lives. I just want to add on to, to what Seamus was saying. I think that a lot of the conversation among adults and particularly among parents about young people's use of dating apps is a you know classic example of a moral panic. So before apps, it was co-ed higher education. And before that, it was rock and roll. And before that, it was women wearing pants. And before that, it was women being in higher education at all, right? So I think that there's a long tradition in America of adults freaking out about young people's sexuality. And that is one of the core messages of the book that, you know, we, we pulled the book pulls back the curtain on what it's like for college students to be in higher education, um, in residential higher education. And we try to represent with compassion and empathy, young people trying to figure this stuff out that nobody has really prepared them for. Yeah, for sure. Um, and going off of this, at the end of the book, you mentioned some, uh, ways of thinking about sexual assault prevention that do not focus on any single cause. And you've mentioned a couple of them throughout the interview, but what else do you have to say about some effective ways that we can prevent sexual assault? Um, so first, you know, our, our big policy target is comprehensive sexuality education. And one of the papers uh, published drawing on the survey data, the first author is my husband, John Santelli. Um, uh, that paper showed that women who had received sex education before college that included training and how to say no to sex they didn't want to have were half as likely to be raped. And other work that I've done lays out um, the framework for seeing comprehensive sex ed, sex ed as uh, sexual assault prevention for perpetration, treat, teaching young people not to assault each other. So really, like if, if you think about the flu vaccine, the flu vaccine is about as effective as that um, 50% reduction in sexual assault. And we want everyone to get the flu vaccine, right? And so essentially, we have a vaccine for sexual assault. It's not going to prevent all the assaults because sexual assault is not one thing, but it would prevent a lot of them. And we've made a decision in America to let states and counties do whatever they want. And so that means that there is profound inequality in who gets comprehensive sex ed. So if you live in a city or in a progressive 
school district or your parents send you to a fancy private school, you're much more likely to get sex ed that protects you not just from being assaulted, but from assaulting other people. And if you're poor or in a rural school district or queer, and so the heteronormative sex ed that is largely what's given to young people just doesn't apply to you at all, um, you're not going to be protected by sex ed. So that's that's something like people should put down the book, pick up a phone and call their legislators and really demand that this is something from an equity point of view that we need to make sure that every young person in America has access to. It's not going to prevent all the assaults, but it could prevent a lot of them. I also think, you know, Jennifer and I, and we've said this many times in this conversation, that um, we need to think about gender and power and gender and inequality, but we need to think about the multiple forms of inequality that exist on campus and beyond and how those are essential for us to address as part of sexual assault prevention strategies. It's part of a broader point that we make, which is that there are lots of things that we can do that are sexual assault prevention strategies that aren't just about sex. And so one of the challenges that we point to is the ways in which sexual assault prevention and an understanding of sexual assault has at colleges and universities and more broadly in our public discourse been siloed. It's been sort of put into this one particular area where we we talk about bystander intervention and we talk about consent education. And don't get us wrong. We think those two things are important, but we think they're fundamentally insufficient and we need to build a bigger tent, a bigger group of people who understand that this is their job. In our research, as part of the Institutional Advisory Board, one of the people who was in on the meetings that we had was a guy named Scott Wright. We always like to name check him, give him a shout out, because you know he was the head of basically facilities. So he, um, he was responsible for the range of buildings and spaces, dorms, things like that on campus. And as we had conversations with him, in particular as Jennifer and Claude had conversations with him, it dawned on him that that he could do something about sexual assault. So, you know, he was responsible for the um, uh, uh, when dining halls were open. And he realized that, oh, wow, I could keep a dining hall open 24 hours on campus so that young people had a place to go late at night after hanging out. And so that's what he did. And it, it sort of was empowering to him to think of himself as someone who could take a role, take a step, have something to do about sexual assault prevention. And, you know, for us, we were very touched about it, but we actually want to see that on a national scale. And there's so many people who think about this as somebody else's job. You know, the young people that we spoke to, many of them, especially if they were able to have conversations with their parents, they talked about how comforting that was so that parents who'd had conversations with their kids about sex and sexuality and were open about it their kids were able to go to them after they'd been assaulted and actually talk about it. But I think, Jennifer, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. I think every single story that we heard that was positive was about talking to their mom. Um, we heard one story that was negative about talking to somebody's dad, a guy who talked to his dad about his own experience of being assaulted. But, you know, that that points to the degree to which men need to step up as part of emotional labor that they're doing for their kids. And so here, the strategy would be thinking not just about sex and sexual assault as, as, as prevention strategies, we're talking about sex. It means that everybody needs to be enlisted in what we think of as a range of projects to raise up young people um, in, 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 in a fundamentally different way than we're doing right now. Yeah. I really like, go ahead. So thinking about parents, I feel like parents really are one of our core audiences 
for the book because there is a crucially important role that parents have. I mean, if schools do sex education, you could think about the parental role as sexual socialization. It's parents' role to create human beings and there's all, or to raise human beings that other people have created. And, and you know, all kinds of messages that parents give their children that are relevant to sexual assault prevention, right? Like when you want something, use your words, don't grab. That's, that's a sexual assault prevention message, right? I think that it's our job as parents to help young people make the connection to using your words, you know, and how students should be having sex. I think that parents need to essentially to, 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 it's our job to create sexual citizens. So if you um, deny your child's sexual citizenship by not letting them have an intimate partner sleepover, I mean, some parents can't do that, right? Because they are just too opposed to premarital sex, but that is a profound erasure of young people's sexual citizenship. If you don't support your kid as they come out, then that's not just an erasure of their sexual citizenship. It's erasure of them as a person. So then when they are in trouble and need you, they're not going to turn to you. So I think it's really, it's our job as parents to be the front line of sexual assault prevention. Yeah, I like the differentiation between sexual socialization and sexual education. I think that's really important. Um, us to talk about. But so we've taken up a lot of both of your time today. And I just want to ask the final question that we always ask on the New Books Network. And that is, what are you both working on now or next? Well, you know, Jennifer and I have been on a a long book tour. And, uh, you know, to be brutally honest, this project has been sort of a 10-year project compressed into probably about five years of work. Um, And so right now, you know, part of what we're trying to do is bring attention to the range of issues that we're interested in and work with other organizations. There's so many organizations, great organizations out there that are sort of running parallel with what we're interested in. And so we want to kind of be part of a national movement around this. Um, You know, eventually I'll get back to, I'll get to another project. There was a book that I had written that was sort of, I put on hold to, to work on this project, but you know, Jennifer and I, I think have another year at least of work to do um, uh, to address this. And some of it means having conversations like we're having right now um, um, and, and speaking to college audiences. But really a big point of the book is that we're getting it to people too late. Um, one of the uh, main findings from the survey portion of the research that um, Claude Mellons ran was that um, uh, being assaulted in high school is one of the strongest predictors for being assaulted in college. And so we need to get into high schools and middle schools. And I think for, for me and Jennifer doing that, finding ways to broaden the conversation to younger kids, institutions that are responsible for them and their parents is, is a big next step for us. So doing the research is really important, but then if we want to have policy impact, um, which we do, we kind of need to have this project of engagement beyond just academics, beyond just um, uh, colleges and universities, and if the book is written for everyone, we kind of want to engage with as many people as we can. Yeah, I mean, you think when you're working on a book, you're so focused on like producing the book and completing it. And now we're in what I would describe as the fourth trimester or the social life of the book. And, you know, research doesn't translate itself into policy. And so if we want people, if we want to change the national conversation, about campus sexual assault and bring in people 
who had not thought of themselves as sexual assault stakeholders, prevention stakeholders, then that means being in conversation with them. It means reaching out to faith communities. It means reaching out, as Shema said, to middle schools and high schools. It means schlepping around the country, talking to people. So I think that we have at least another year, if not longer, to really do the work. Um, That's not something that people are trained to do in social science training programs. I think that we focus a lot on training people to produce information with rigor, and we don't provide a lot of guidance in terms of what to do with that information to do any good in the world. But Seamus and I are really both, as a team, pretty committed to this project. And so that's that's what's next, is more of this. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm a huge proponent of especially public sociology in my field. So I think that's great that you guys are going out in the world and really sharing this research with people that maybe wouldn't access um, academic research otherwise. Um, so where can listeners find you online to learn more about your work and your book? Well, we have a Facebook page, um, Sexual Citizens. Um, it's actually, I think it's SXL um, because you can't use sexual in Facebook. Um, uh, but really, I think our, our website is a good place to begin, sexualcitizens.com. Um, and that has information on the book tour that we were just on, although much of that tour with the coronavirus going on as we're speaking um, has been canceled. But um, uh, we hope uh, to be back on the road in the fall. And um, through that website, people can get in touch with us, can talk to us about, you know, bringing us to their school um, or, you know, see some of the range of work that we've done. Because in addition to this book, there's at least a dozen papers that we're, we've either led or a part of um, that provide a little bit um, more of uh, academic orientation uh, to the work that kind of undergirds um, the Sexual Citizens book, which is really written for everybody. Yeah, so the we have the book has a website, uh, sexualcitizens.com, and then the larger Columbia Research Project has a website. Um, uh, people can look for a shift at Mailman, uh, which is the name of Columbia School of Public Health. And then Seamus and I are far too much time on Twitter. So people can always find us on Twitter and they'll get all sorts of colorful opinions from us, not just about the book, but about everything. So uh, we, and we love to engage with our readers. So we're excited to, to be in touch with people. We bring our whole lives to Twitter. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> awesome. Well, great. Again, this has been an interview with Dr. Jennifer Hirsch and Dr. Seamus Khan, authors of Sexual Citizens, a landmark study of sex, power, and assault on campuses. I want to thank both of you again for being on the show today, and I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks so much for having us. It was our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for making time to talk about this important issue.